Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. I'm Leighton Schreier, and today I'm here with Bonte Minima. Bonte is a seasoned communications professional who worked in LGBT media and advocacy for many years. He began as an activist at the University of Toronto in the late 1990s with LGBT Out, the oldest LGBTQ student organization in Canada, and he remains passionate about supporting and advancing LGBTQ rights today. Welcome, Bonte. Thank you. Today, we will be reflecting on the history of the LGBTQ rights movement and its significance for the present moment, and we will be discussing LGBTQ activism. That's a lot to cover. So let's not waste any more time. Bonte, I was hoping we could start with a bit of history to set the scene, so to say. The 1969 Stonewall Riots are often pointed to as the start of the LGBTQ rights movement. Can you take me back to 1969 and tell me a little bit about what was going on at the time? Sure. It was um, a very different time today. People tended to meet in private and they would have codes. There used to be events uh, uh, on campus and, and there would be, like at, at bars, people would uh, turn on or off the lights depending on who was coming in or, or there would be, you know, a, a coded password to get in. Uh, following the Stonewall riots, many universities uh, developed a community organizations, usually student-run. The UTHA, the University of Toronto Homophile Association, started in 1969 um, and that was uh, at the beginning of a, a much more open period of um, uh, queer community life on campus. If we go back historically at U of T, we have Philosopher's Walk uh, between Trinity College and the Music Building, which if legend uh, uh, is true, was also a place where at night uh, uh, men knew to meet. And there were other places where we know that historically people who were attracted to people of the same uh, uh, sex or gender found ways to meet, uh, but it was all very sort of quiet and underground and, and you kind of needed to know someone to know. And after the Stonewall riots, uh, the UTHA was founded uh, and similar organizations at many universities across the country and the US in a more open period of um, uh, what we now call um, uh, LGBT or 2S LGBTI or queer activism uh, began. And you mentioned codes there. Um, I'm wondering if you can just really briefly for our listeners explain what you mean by codes. A good example of this might be camp language, um, um, the reclamation of some words. The You'll see this, for example, on RuPaul's Drag Race, where people use gender fluid language, sometimes where people have uh, gender fluid identities, but often just as a way of coding an environment and sort of testing out uh, their audience and who they're talking to to see if they know what they're talking about. There's many examples of this throughout history. Uh, for example, during World War II um, uh, in Holland, if they were trying to identify if someone was uh, a, a spy from another country, they would talk about travels to a particular town in, in um, the Netherlands called Scheveningen, which is very difficult to for people from outside the country to pronounce. And so then they could establish rapport and trust. And so 
LGBT communities around the world, um, uh, in many cases, have adopted similar strategies of just trying to assess the situation and 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 figure out where people stood with someone and how far they could go in that introduction. It's probably the way many salespeople greet their clients these days. It's it's a natural human interaction, and for their safety, um, uh, those who knew. Um, and those who are exploring developed codes. That's a great, uh, great explanation. Um, and I like the example you gave there. Um, I, I don't know the language, but it sounded very formal uh, or, or very good. So I don't know, are you, are you from the Netherlands? I was, I was born in Holland. My parents okay. moved to Canada when I was a small child. Okay, there you go. So, you, so I think it's good we've established you're not a spy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm wondering if you can move me a little bit further along in, in history now. Um, and um, I want to swing into kind of talking about like the HIV and the AIDS um, epidemic. And um, if you can tell me a little bit about what the role of the HIV and AIDS epidemic was in the LGBTQ rights movement. I think the slogan silence equals death really says so much. I don't know if it wraps it up in its entirety, but what was happening was that that people were dying, and and any of the luxury of the queer spaces that came out in the '70s, where people in urban centers, particularly, were able to gather with like-minded people. Um, uh, you know, in urban centers, people found each other and congregated and lived closer together. And, and established neighborhoods that we now call the village or the ghetto, depending on one's perspective. These were able to begin flourishing and, and become uh, spaces that you know now live large in, in, in folklore or Thomas Finlinard and other movies and, and things like that. So the, the 80s happened and people were dying and, and we couldn't just exist quietly. We needed to advocate for our lives. It was just, you know, something was going on and research was needed. It took what felt like a very long time. The response, for example, to COVID um, um, was rapid. And so, I mean, if we hadn't imagined, you know, a rapid scientific response to um, a viral illness that was killing people universally, it, it didn't discriminate. We didn't have the luxury of silence anymore. We didn't have the luxury of just quietly going about our lives and not rocking the boat. Things had to happen. And so like silence equals death, I think really sums up uh, uh, the statement and the activism and the movement. And I think um, if I'm not mistaken, then this is also kind of around the time where you were getting into activism or on the tail end of that um, in the 90s. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about um, how you got involved in LGBT activism and, and what your work was there. Sure. So to bridge that, I mean, I came to university in the mid 90s and it was just at the time that with respect to um, HIV and AIDS, AZT had just started becoming more widely available and the death rate was starting to slow down significantly. And um, and, and, and a lot of changes started happening. Um, um, in the years before I came to university, when I was in high school in Ontario, the NDP provincial government led by Bob Ray had attempted to do a broad legislative uh, uh, equalization for LGBT people that came close but failed. 
Um, there was a lot of activism around that. It was interesting how um, uh, this all came about and, and what identity politics were happening in the late 80s and early 90s. And these things rise and fall and rise and fall uh, uh, over time. So by the mid 90s, people were beginning to live and live longer. And there's many impacts of that. We've got the lost generation from HIV. Um, um, and we also have now people who are living who, you know, decades later are like, oh, I'm living a long time and needed to plan a longer life. The time of the 90s was very exciting. Things were happening. There was many bars and, and, and restaurants where people met. Bars were a, a, a congregational space for LGBT people because it was a, a you know, place where people could meet and, and, and be openly who they were and, and often functioned as community centers. Um, on campus, there was a lot of activity. We were doing a lot of social events. The homo hops became very popular. They had come and gone uh, uh, over the years. It was um, a uniquely U of T student party um, that has uh, uh, been hosted in many buildings at many times over the years and um, uh, really began to grow quite large. Central Toronto Youth Services opened programs like supporting our youth. People started coming out younger. I came out uh, just at the tail end of my high school years, which was unusual. Uh, that is more of a phenomenon of the early 2000s. In the 90s, it was still come out at university or after graduation, when you've moved away from home, when you have more control over your own life, when you have control over your own um, uh, economic stability. And as LGBT visibility rose, um, people became more comfortable coming out earlier. Uh, you know, there's sort of a thing with a much older generation. If you came out before 69, you probably stayed in the closet and stayed married. If you came out after 69, most m more people uh, got divorced and led more openly gay lives. And, and that trajectory continued over time. During the 90s, I worked with um, uh, people like David Neelands on campus and Marilyn Van Norman uh, and Margaret Hancock. We developed programs uh, to have resources uh, about coming out in the workplace, to uh, develop a network of mentors for LGBT students, um, um, essentially mirroring all of the existing programming that the Career Center offered with a specific um, focus on what the needs might be and how that might be different for uh, um, LGBTQ job seekers. Uh, when involved with LGBT organizations, do you put that on your resume? You know, if one was involved with and leading any other cultural organization uh, by way of comparison, that would be, one would be encouraged to include that on a resume. Um, for LGBTQ students, including that on a resume, because this was a time where allyship wasn't as common a word or, or as common a thing, um, um, would definitely be outing people today. I think we live in a world where someone could be involved with, for example, Start Proud used to be out on Bay Street as an ally, um, and including that on a resume isn't necessarily outing some, oneself. And I think for, for the younger generation, 
outing or not, it's like, it's irrelevant. It's about skills. It's about like, oh, look, you were involved with an organization that brought people together and did things so you can coordinate, you can influence, you can organize, um, you can plan. You, you know, doing that shows a series of skills. Whereas in the mid nineties, um, um, and for some time after that, that was still a personal identifier that often led to, to potentially other questions, not always, but but potentially, and it was something that a a, a job seeker at, in those days would need to think about. Um, some people were very out and were like, "I'm going to be out," and that's that. And it also was, you know, like I I don't want to walk into a situation where I'm going to have trouble. I'm just going to let people know in advance, and if they're going to go to the next um, resume, that's fine. It's not fine, but you know, we have to we have to negotiate our way through this world. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you did some really, really incredible work there supporting students and, you know, helping them find their way. Um, reflecting on your experience, what were some of the key factors that you think contributed to the success that we saw with LGBTQ plus activism? I think there's a, um, a wonderful confluence of events. So, Legal strategy changed from, as I mentioned, the Bob Ray days of trying to get everything into one bill to a piecemeal approach to equality and to funding projects. And that seemed to be more palatable for the broad public. It created a space where more allies could comfortably identify themselves and uh, participate in advocacy in their own way and that you know added momentum it created space where um people of all ages and in various spaces throughout the country had more visibility and and could come out the internet was growing and the world becomes a village and and people of similar interests of any number of, of interests could find each other meet each other and have community and support and the death rate went down and um, uh, uh, really declined dramatically and so people were living. And for all of those people who had gone through the immense and incredible challenges of uh, HIV and AIDS for the 80s and 90s, which we still live with, we now have PrEP and the younger generation has a remarkable amount of freedom because the, for those who have access to this pill, there is um, uh, a degree of safety uh, in terms of sexuality uh, from what was this, this incredibly scary thing in the 90s, you know, discovering your body and the pleasures that were in your uh, a, a body and that were available to you that, you know, young adults experience and explore was also deadly still. In, in the 90s and, and not anymore today. So, so there was a wonderful confluence of amazing steps that were happening and they weren't easy. They were a lot of work. Um, a lot of people had a lot of difficult moments, but each difficult moment was a step forward. And, um, and, and out of a lot of tragedies, uh, um, uh, eventually, things got better and more people came out and and our 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 physical presence grew you know there was a thing um the toronto pride parade had 
was declared to have a million viewers, a million participants coming out to watch the parade. And that was uh, psychologically important in terms of uh, the city, in terms of the country, in terms of politics, in terms of people coming to accept that our community was large, allyship was larger, we influenced a lot of people, and, and sort of the idea that the negative connotations that, were, that, that the tropes of, of homophobia couldn't possibly be true if there's that many of us, you know, if we really were that powerful and we really had such a negative impact on the world, you know. I mean, it would have been over already, right? Like comedians would make jokes like, really, if I was that powerful, people at my office would dress better and I wouldn't have to deal with all this bad fashion, right? Just to put a, a joke on it, right? When, when we look at activism more kind of retrospectively and we take this like historical look, it's easy to think that, you know, from one day to the next, the, the switch just flipped. Um, but really understanding all of the work that goes into that and all of the little steps and the little challenges. It's interesting, right? So, I mean, it's great when big steps can happen and um, and when there is a moment and an opportunity, we should take them. But we also, at, at some point, as, as people who are interested in equality and in um, expanding equity and access to equity for more people, um, we're not in control of everything. Um, um, as much as I think, you know, if you and I were running the world, we could make it a much better place. <laughs> Getting to, you know, what Malcolm Gladwell would call a tipping point takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of attempts and um, we just need to remain optimistic and keep trying, right? I don't want to live with the alternative. Yeah, thank you so much. You spoke so wonderfully about how important history is and, and remembering things and, and documenting things. And um, I guess just to, to end this off, um, coming back to you know activism and we spoke about some of the things that that you felt were um able to kind of see that success and the the momentum in terms of um lgbtq rights and recognizing that you know although we've come a really far way there's still so much that we need to be doing and that people are doing and that people are fighting for um so i'm wondering just to end things off uh, what do you want people who are currently fighting for LGBTQ plus rights to know? Keep going. Keep going. Um, um, it's important that we uh, build equity and inclusion and read people's stories into the past and into the future. Uh, keep going. Include people. Um, um, include the people who are looking for a space. Uh, include the people who are looking for equity and diversity uh, transnationally, cross-culturally, uh, across genders, across incomes. Um, um, include people. Say yes. Keep going. Who knows what many wonderful, amazing things these people will contribute to our society. Who knows what many wonderful and amazing things um, can come out of whether they're studying science or architecture or whatever their passions may be when we create space for people when we can support them they will share their gifts with the world in a wonderful and amazing way that that things we didn't know were possible will happen impossible things will come true so 
say yes, keep going, include people. I think that's such an inspirational way to, to end this interview and a, a really hopeful note. And yeah, I think it speaks beautifully as well to that idea of intersectionality and like the multiplicity of our lives and our identities and that by honoring people's wholeness, we can make the world more whole. So I want to end just by thanking you again for, for taking the time to speak with me today. It, it was wonderful to have this opportunity. Thank you. It's really touched my heart to be included in this and to see the many steps forward that the university has taken and, uh, and, and that things like this are happening. It really warms my heart and, and, and gives me even more hope for the future. Won't be easy, but it's all possible. We just have to keep going. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. And hopefully we can find more ways for Massey College to be contributing and actively advancing that, that as well for our community. I've been speaking today with Bonte Minima, an experienced communications professional and LGBTQ rights activist. I'm Leighton Schreier. You've been listening to The JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.